Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. Today's episode is with Tor Sigfarsson, the founder of the Iceland Ocean Cluster. Iceland is known for having some of the most productive fisheries in the world, and some even call it the Silicon Valley of white fish. The Iceland Ocean Cluster was born out of an academic research project. Unlike many other clusters that are publicly funded, this cluster is private and acts as a part venture studio, facilitator, matchmaker, and investor for new ideas born between the synergies of its members. The cluster started in 2012 with just 12 companies coming together to work in one space. Fast forward to today, and the cluster seats over 70 companies of different sizes that represent most parts of the Icelandic ocean value chain, from fisheries to seafood biotech companies. The Iceland Ocean Cluster estimates that 70% of the companies in the house have collaborated with another member. A lot of this focuses on creating value from low-hanging fruit, like turning the waste byproduct of a fish into a business. In today's episode, we dive into why Iceland is a leader in seafood processing technology, the innovative ways they have thought to use 100% of a fish, and how they are looking to build the fishing ship of tomorrow. We also discuss how the cluster got started, its model which has been used around the world, and how the cluster has contributed to the growth of an industry. If you like this episode and want to learn more about ocean farming in the Nordics, I suggest you check out the following episodes. There's Seaweed Solutions from Norway, Ocean Harvest from Denmark, or the Hatch Aquaculture Accelerator. You can find all of these episodes on www.nordicfoodtech.io. Hi, Tor, and welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm very good. And I would like to start this conversation by talking about where you started your career, which is actually in academia. Can you give us the story of what you were doing? I was actually working on my PhD, and I had been studying how entrepreneurs from a small country like ours, how they expanded globally. And uh, my first results were clearly that it made a huge difference if they had been studying abroad or working abroad. It made their mindset a little bit more broad, so they were more uh, willing and able to expand globally, which, of course, is the key to the success of a small economy like ours. But from that, I started to look into the data a little bit further and saw that some of the engineers that I had been studied um, uh, had fairly small networks, and they tended to be coming from uh, servicing the fishing industry seafood industry. And I wondered why that could be. And, and basically, my conclusion was that some of these natural resource industries tend to have these tendencies to have closed uh, networks, little smaller networks. They're dealing with their own sort of their uh, natural resources that are limited. And that due to that, they tend to have uh, want to keep these resources for themselves. So I saw an opportunity to try to open that because it's such a crucial element for uh, an industry that is not 
limited at all. It has huge potentials. Why do you think the fishermen had smaller networks? As I said, one of the one of the sort of characteristics of natural resource industries is that they tend to have uh, this closed loop uh, view in a way mm. because people are these are limited resources, and if you have a limited resource, you tend to keep them for yourself. You don't want to open up for everybody. Just to put a little bit more context on why a big network or a small network matters, why why did that pique your interest? What's interesting is that when I was studying networks, we have networks that are what we can call like uh, uh, high relations networks and then weak or weak and strong ties. And you tend to have in a small network often just a very few strong ties. And if you only have these strong ties, you tend not to open for for new ideas because these strong ties tend to have similar ideas as yourself. So that's why the network is so important, just not only to look at you know your par- parents, your family, and your closest friends, but also the circle around that, which actually can go further, very far away. And that's basically the the challenge in business is always to find new uh, contacts that are so f- often so far away from you and maybe think quite le- quite different from yourself. And you don't do, do it through Facebook and you don't do it through sort of these regular strong ties. So you have to open up to make sure that you're getting the new knowledge, new ideas in. Mm. But it's also that these communities can be really tiny, right? So there's sometimes the feeling that maybe you already know everyone or everything. I think one of the things that I learned from the, when I was starting with the cluster is that I met so many people that I was I was telling them about this research of ours, and they said there's this is something there, there's something wrong about this because the fact is we have uh, one one guy told me as an engineer I have I can lift up the phone now in Iceland and call whomever I like in the in the the CEOs of all fisheries. So I, I don't look at myself as having a small network or whatever. And I said, how often have you done it for the last 12 months? And he responded by saying there was no need. So I probably did not give anyone a call at that time. So the fact is we have like a it's in small societies we might have like these shadow networks that we feel are we're confident with, but if we're not using them, they are in a way useless unless, of course, in, the, in some su- super emergency. But if we can't, if we're not using them, we're not sharing ideas or skills or whatever. Mm, that's so interesting. So you had this body of work you were doing. You were out talking in the community. What then led you to starting the Iceland Ocean Cluster? I had been thinking about clusters for a while. Uh, and uh, so I just decided to jump into it right away. And I I, uh, I began, of course, with these group meetings that were kind of people, some had no idea what, what I was doing, thought it was just another organization idea with just sharing a cup of coffee and then leaving. But what we began to do already, already from the beginning was actually to talk about the idea of low-hanging fruits. And that is the key to the success of the cluster. Never leave a meeting without asking the question, where are the low-hanging fruits? This is something you might do together that can bring value to your company. And this gave us a, a kind of a, a head start, I think. There's many people realized that this was different. So we were quite early on starting with business plans on the table, 
and businesses tend to understand, you know, numbers. So if you have numbers on the table, mm -hmm. then suddenly they're saying it's not only the cup of coffee and some donuts, it's actually something more. What's an example of a low-hanging fruit? Well, what, what we were trying to say is that often at meetings, even with group meetings of companies, people might be saying we need to strengthen the education in the industry or whatever. These are like the long-term discussions that everybody are taking and are so important. But we might actually say, as we did in the beginning, what, for instance, what is what, what are the byproducts that you're throwing away? And they would maybe respond, let's say, we're not using the fish in that much. We are sort of in problems with that or what we're doing less with the, the hats or whatever. And we would say, okay, what can we do with, with that? And we started actually doing some research and we found out uh, that some of these uh, byproducts we could do better with. And probably the best example is how we took the, the fish skin that had been exported for raw material in the past. And we found out that we could do collagen, which is a protein from this amazing fish skin in Iceland. And now since that, we have an, op we have an operation in Iceland that's called Marine Collagen that is developing hundreds and hundreds of tons of pure collagen protein, which is worth a lot. Yeah. And I think you gave me some numbers on that, that the multiple of how much more it's worth when you use this thing that otherwise would have been thrown away is kind of crazy. It's amazing. I think we can we can always tenfold the value of uh, the fish if we are, and we can do even more than that. But on, on average, we can say that, you know, you can get from one fillet of uh, cod, maybe $12, $15, but you can do at least $30 to $40 per cod from the byproducts. Keep in mind, Annalisa, that basically the byproducts of the fish, being the, the liver and the, the skin and the bones, these are the best proteins of the fish. And these are the most, they should be therefore defined as the most valuable products. But to, to develop them, you have to have fishermen that understand that there is value there. You don't have to have a fisherman that is actually learning biotechnology or becoming a pharmacist. But if they connect with people from that area, you can do magic. Yeah. I'd love to zoom out a little bit into the history of fish and ships in Iceland and painting a picture of what actually is the Icelandic fishing industry, just to understand what are the different things that are going on? What does this industry look like? Could you paint that for us? Yeah, I would say that there, are, there were significant changes. We would see in the Reykjavik Harbor in the 40 years ago, we probably had 200 boats, small boats. Then in, in the 80s, we started to develop a new management system, which is based on quotas. So you would say actually to the fishermen, it's all of, all of you that have been fishing in the past, you can get a quota in line with what, how much you caught. And we are absolutely sure to manage how much there is the catch each year, which is never above what the scientists allow. But with this system, we allowed them also to start trading quotas. So suddenly we saw more and more uh, fishermen leaving the industry and fewer and fewer actually becoming larger and larger. And this has, of course, meant social disturbance. But at the same time, we're having quite strong internationally competitive uh, companies in Iceland all around the island, gladly, that have made this uh, industry into what it is today. I think we're number 17 in the world in terms of the, the amount of cats 
So we're very uh, we're very high on that list. We're catching around 1.2 million metric tons of fish each year, and we catch around 60 million pieces of cod each year. So these are huge numbers. But I think also due to the fact that we have that not that many other resources, we have always looked upon it as a part of our mission to treat these resources as well as we can. And I know some people have referred to Iceland as the Silicon Valley of whitefish. So what exactly is happening in and around whitefish and technology? Um, I think the good thing is, of course, that we've, uh, we have now some of the largest processing technology companies in the world that are actually using laser technology. And this is sold all, all over the world to make sure that we can get as good quality fish as we can in the processing itself. But what is so amazing for us now is to see all these young people coming in with all these amazing ideas. And even though we look at ourselves as being the magnet in the Iceland Ocean Cluster with the Ocean Cluster House, we find that these people are not listening necessarily to us. They're coming with their own ideas on what to do next with the with the white fish or whatever. So they're coming with new ideas, with uh, new protein ideas, with medical Prod, uh, products that they want to develop from, from the fish. So this is what we mean by Silicon Valley, when we have this mindset of especially young entrepreneurs coming in with new ideas that are completely changing the industry. These are the game changers, and they are only going to be more and more if we keep this mindset going. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I know we've talked a lot about the Icelandic entrepreneurial mindset, but what else creates that entrepreneurial mindset? I honestly, I don't have the answer for this. The only thing that I know is that we're fairly new into the modern world. We were kind of a poor society, so maybe 60, 60 70 years ago. So we've gone quite fast through these uh, steps. And I think that's probably why we're kind of uh, hasting through the whole thing right now. But um, we're 360,000 people. And I think one of our one of our success stories will be that we were actually we needed to go abroad to study. There were a few universities, so we tended all most of us to go abroad, and that's probably made this quite homogenic society much more open than you would see in some others. So we had lots of young students studying in the U.S., many in Scandinavia, in Europe, etc coming back with all these uh, different ideas, all kinds of classes of ideas in a homogenic society is something that I cherish. And I think that's basically what made us a little bit uh, more dynamic than we probably would be perceived to be. It may Some have said that the bad weather and the dark winters are also helping because we have it's not that we can be sunbathing or anything. We just need to be working. So it's kind of a, we actually have one of the highest, what's called work participation ratio in the world, meaning that, that people are willing to work. And I don't think it's only only our mindset. It's probably our circumstances. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about seafood processing technology and what makes Icelandic fisheries some of the most productive in the world? I think first and foremost, it's actually... This, uh, if the fisherman catches a fish in Iceland, they, in their newest design, they can take it on board, humanely uh, kill the fish as soon as possible, and make sure that the, the parts that are valuable will be separated from the beginning. This is the crucial element, actually, because if you do so, 
you will have a much better byproduct than if you just mix them all together. So that is a very important part of the success of the industry is to make sure that it is brought onto the boat and processed right away quite well. As soon as it gets to the shore, it get, it, it's brought into factories that are really like hospitals in many ways. You would imagine what kind of uh, you know facilities these are. Fully automatic, not, not often just few individuals in these large factories, all done with laser sights. And you might actually have, uh, that's going to be coming in a few years' time. You might have actually a consumer in New York that will be buying a fish and they, or he or she can actually choose the fish that they're actually buying. And they can follow, track it from the boat to the facility, to the production facility, and to hopefully an electric ship or, or uh, plane that will take you, take it directly to your home. And I'm not kidding. This is actually happening. This, we have now the technology to do a lot of this, these things. So we're, we're, we will sh- surely see this in the coming years. Hmm. Um, is there anything else that's exciting in and around the productivity or the processing technology that you'd want to mention? I think one of the, one of the most important parts of the, this, this uh, value line is actually the catch itself. What I would like to see, and we're, we have an amazing company here in Iceland now called Optitalk.com, which is actually developing uh, lights instead of nets. To catch the fish, they will use lights rather than nets. Dragging the nets on, on the seabed is really a, a natural disaster in many ways. So I'm, we are very much looking forward to, to seeing that development and making sure that we can actually have, of course, electric boats, but also um, of also fish gear that is completely different. So we will have a CO2-free uh, catch with absolutely amazing technology to save the seabed as well. And the idea of the fishing ship for tomorrow or of tomorrow is one that I know is also being focused on in and around the cluster. So what does that look like? What would be the fishing ship of tomorrow? I think uh, we're hoping that that's going to be the electric fishing boat with absolutely no CO2. It may be methane as well. Uh, We will have these boats with um, batteries that actually are probably going to be nanotechnology. That is a part of the hull of the ship itself. So rather than having these typical batteries, the the electricity will be kept in in the hull of the ship. So, and I'm not sure how many actually employees will be on board, but uh, some say they will not need to be that many. They might actually be in on land as well. Wow. Using nanotechnology. That's amazing. Um, the other thing I know is we talked about it a little bit before, but this idea of using 100% of the fish. And while many countries use around 50% of the white fish, Icelanders are known for using about 80% of each fish. And then creating all these different kinds of byproducts, whether that's the omega oil, the fish leather, beauty products. So I know that you've had a hand in really focusing on the byproducts or the low-hanging fruit, as you said, to say, what are we wasting that could actually be turned into something we could be making a business around? But what does that look like? What does 100% fish mean? It's actually not even a vision. It's actually something that we could do right away. And some Icelandic companies are already aiming for 100% and getting quite close to it. 
It means that we're actually just realizing that these proteins are some of the best proteins in the world. These are the natural, sustainable, traceable proteins that we can so easily create value for. Not only value, but we can actually make amazing uh, protein for, for a world that so much needs these proteins. And I must tell you, Annalisa, the sad part is, of course, that today we think that the world is wasting around 10 million metric tons of byproducts. This is actually like 40 billion meals. So we, we, we can do so much better. That's basically where we would like to, where we believe if the Icelandic model will be spread around, we can do better with, with these amazing proteins. Yeah. And just to add to that, I, I just did a podcast with Seaweed Solutions from Norway. And the CEO there shared that currently only about 2% of our food comes from the oceans. Yeah. So there is a lot of untapped potential of how much when you can just take existing catches and really turn something into it, but also to scale up what we consider food, how we harvest that food sustainably, and you know still support a very healthy ecosystem. Absolutely. So just talking a little bit more, I want to go back to the beginning of the history of the Iceland Ocean Cluster, that it started as this idea of a building or kind of what, what happened? And then what is it today if you take us on the journey of the last decade? It started as a, as a network, of course, like a clustering where we were just matchmaking. We didn't have any facility there. Uh, so we were just getting people to meet and talk and using this low-hanging fruit idea. Uh, we opened the house, the Ocean Cluster house, a year later. But at the same time, we were already establishing some of the startups that we took part in, direct part in. So we had the company called Codland, and we started the company called Collagen. And then, uh, so we, due to the fact that we were not government sponsored, like many clusters elsewhere, there's no government, there's no cluster policy in Iceland. It meant that we became more like a, a venture capital uh, cluster as well, having to, uh, we took part, active part in some of these startups. Uh, so we we took part in the companies that we met. I mentioned we also started the the food halls, two food halls here in Iceland that are still uh, have investments in there. So we it's quite a different model from many other clusters, but it was mainly due to just uh, the necessity. But today we actually think that this is kind of a clever model because we are so much involved with the companies. And we, we are so much known to be the low-hanging fruit strategists. So I think the, these are the positive elements of the, the necessi necessity of how we were established in the beginning. We have now clusters, sister clusters in other countries. I'm mostly proud of the U.S. operations that we have. The cluster in Maine, for instance, Portland, Maine, has an amazing facility like ours. It's called the Hoos. And they are showing us examples where young people are now taking some of the lobster waste to develop beauty products from lobster waste and are selling in Boston. I love these stories. I just absolutely love them. And I think this is what's going to happen all around. If we get young generations into this industry, wherever, this is what will happen. We have also in Connecticut, they're very much into seaweed. We have New Bedford, Massachusetts with uh, offshore uh, uh, windmills etc etc and we are learning as well from these different parts there uh, the the mainers are much better than we with lobster we're best in whitefish etc etc 
So I think this this network that we're building can become a, a vehicle of change. Yeah, and like you said, when I first heard your story, I was kind of blown away by the fact that this was a privately started funded initiative because normally throughout the Nordics, you'll see lots of different clusters for different things, but those tend to be government backed in one way, one shape or another. So in terms of this model that you figured out that also has been copy and pasted around the world with the establishment of your sister clusters abroad, what is that model? What did you figure out works? I think what works is basically to have my employees dedicated to uh, the building of the network, knowing that this network means basically that we are always finding new business opportunities. And these business opportunities can create value for not only the cluster, but mainly for the the economy as a whole. So I think it's very much a mission-driven culture that we need to have as a part of our work here. Mm -hmm. And in the actual Iceland Ocean Cluster house, how many companies are there and do they span the whole supply chain or the value chain? What do you look for in terms of who's in the house? We have around 60, 65 companies right now in the Ocean Cluster house. Some of them have, of course, just uh, names, startups or business plans. We started with 10 companies, but we have expanded the operation nearly Quite often. So we have extended the house. It's now around 3,000 square meters. It started in only 700 square meters. But we we have, uh, so it's been expanding quite a lot. And what's so amazing also and so important is that sometimes you find companies coming in that you have no idea how are going to be mixing up with other companies. You just know that there are, you tend to look at the people who like other people, like people liking people. And if that's the case, they tend to mix and come up with new ideas. I always remember a guy came in, coming to me some years ago. He said, I'm actually a clothing designer. And I said, well, I, I know it's kind of far-fetched. I like the designing part, but clothing design is not a big thing for us. It's not my cup of tea, really. And then he said, I'm actually working with salmon leather. And I said, you're absolutely in. And the fact is, these people have been making a huge difference for the and also for the attitudes and the mindset of the people here is that realizing that the opportunities seem to be endless. Mm, yeah, when you bring really diverse perspectives together. I think, wasn't it something like you a cod fillet normally would retail for that $15 to $20, but if you get into the cod skin, it can get up to like $2,000 in terms of retail, which is just such a gigantic difference yeah i think what the probably the most successful company in the in the ocean cluster in iceland is caresses which is actually developing um medical product from the fish skin used for people that have had to be good having their wounds healed burn victims etc so actually the fish skin is laid on the uh, on and it actually helps the natural skin to to heal and this is now fda approved and is sold globally but what's so amazing is that we have probably, I think there are 150 people working for this company now, and they're only using fish skin from one boat in the West Shores of Iceland. That's enough for them, but they are probably one of the most valuable companies in the ocean space in Iceland now, just doing medical skin from this one boat. Can you imagine the opportunities? That's, that's amazing to think about. What impact are you seeing then trickling down to the fishermen who are, you know, the whole, the story started with the fishermen and the harvesting of the raw materials, which are a scarce resource. And you think to keep to yourself because there's a certain limit on it. 
So what impact have you seen for them? It's a very good question. So many are asking that, and I think it's very important that we answer that. And I think what we've seen, for instance, if we just take the example of a simple product like cod liver, in the past there was nearly no value in cod liver. So the fishermen didn't keep it. Then they started to get more demand from startups and, and Omega companies that said, we can, we need that. And as we brought more companies into that space, suddenly the, the, the price of the market price of cod liver in past thrown away increased. And it means that the fisherman is getting more value and is preserving the, the, the liver much better than in the past. So this has trickled down to the fisherman. This is what I would like to see in more cases, and it it has to, but at least we have very good examples of that. Yeah. Are the fishermen on board with the Iceland Ocean Cluster? I, I think we've, uh, we're quite well, uh, well known in, in the industry, and there are lots of people that are. And I think one of the good things is that the fishermen in Iceland are very, they are super professional. I'm very proud of the Icelandic fishermen because they tend to be very, even though they have this sort of, of course, limited resource, they are really interested to see their children becoming excited about developing new products from what they do. And I had a meeting with two fishing companies where all the, the skippers were, were and some key personnel or, uh, in the room. And I started to showing them the, the enzymes from the intestines of the fish and then the fish leather and the, and, and the collagen, and they became super excited to see what they could, what could be made from, from the fish. What I was, though, a little bit interested in is that many of them had never seen the products, these products. So we still have a work to do to teach the fishermen and tell them about these stories and tell them about these opportunities that we have with these amazing proteins. Yeah, it makes me think of a movie I watched about truffle hunters and the people who actually go out and find the truffles, but they're very far removed from the actual marketplace where the truffles are sold. So they actually have no clue what the daily price is or what it's retailing for. And it can be quite a crazy multiple from how much they're getting paid. But it's that removal of, I never actually saw the end product. I don't really know who the end customer is. I don't know where this goes once I pass it on to the next step in the chain. And that can do a lot in terms of your the transparency and the knowledge you have of the value you create. Absolutely. So I'm curious a little bit just to understand the impact of the Iceland ocean cluster today, um, but also really to get the picture of what does the value chain look like? So wondering if there's any other numbers. I know you said you've expanded from 700 square meters to 3000. I'm wondering if there's anything else, like how many jobs have been created or how many companies have gone through, um, or anything else that's worth mentioning around growing this from just 10 companies to something that has helped to really grow an industry and grow a new way of thinking about using 100% of the fish and sustainable fishing. We have like a top 10 in, in, uh, in the cluster, companies that have been with us and have started just like startups uh, and in the last 10 years. And these companies are now, these top 10 are now valued at nearly $400 million. So, uh, but I, I'm more interested actually in the companies that are coming right now. The uh, seaweed plastic that's in my in the next office to mine. Um, amazing uh, entrepreneurs coming with with new ideas. The lights that I told you about the, the fishing uh, 
with with lights, all these new ideas that we see as such a super value. But we can also brag about the fact that one of the the elements that we look at is the the variables is actually how many of the companies in the ocean cluster house collaborate with other companies, and this is now. Our last study showed 70% of the companies collaborate, and this is what we need. And I look even at that more than anything else with regards to the personalities and the leaders of these companies. If they have this cleverness or understanding the value in meeting other people and talking to them and sharing ideas and maybe collaborating, that's where we—that's what we see as the the major major success of the cluster. Hmm. And what do you really think helps to encourage that collaboration? Well, I think one of the silly answers will be the coffee machine. And I'm not kidding. The good coffee machines in the Ocean Cluster House have made a huge difference. And we do not allow them to have their own coffee machines in their own facilities. They have to come out of their offices and, and uh, have coffee in these coffee rooms. Uh, this is not a new idea, but it has made a, a huge difference. So that's one thing. We have also like happy, happy hour, which is very important as well. And I, we require that these companies in these happy hours, coffee mornings, uh, they tell about their stories and what they're doing and what they're looking for. So we try to mix people as much as we can. We don't require them to mix, but we just encourage them to use these opportunities to mix. And of course, my staff here is very much involved in that meaning that if someone new comes in we will already say talk to these these girls here or these guys and understand that there may be value in your in this collaboration this has been a part of our success as well and you mentioned that it, especially in the early days but also now you very much acted as a venture studio helping when there was a collaboration or an idea you helped make it more tangible by actually putting the business plan out there getting it off the ground what does that process look like? How did you actually, is there an example of how you made that happen? Well, I think the interesting thing is that when we started this, we had the fishermen, great fishermen uh, in the meeting room. They were CEOs of large fisheries. And we were talking about new ideas. And they said, we like the idea. And we said, okay, let's should we do something about it. And they would say, we would absolutely like to do something about it. But all our staff is pretty busy doing the things we need them to do which is to sell fish or process fish or whatever. So we do not have any staff to do that. And we would say, let's then just establish a company and we can take on this role to begin with. And that's how it all started in a way. We began with students who did some initial business plans and then more developed business plans. And when we had the business plans, they, they all came on board. And once again, as I mentioned earlier, because the businesses know numbers, they understand numbers, and this made this made a huge difference for all of us. Yeah, uh, and I also want to mention the fact that you've written a book, which is a manifesto. If an individual out there is working really anywhere and says, "I want to start a cluster around this product or material I'm working with and see what else we can do," can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I wanted because there are, there are now being we are being asked to advise and help people all around. And we love that absolutely, but I thought it was would be valuable for for all of us as well to have our sort of uh, guidelines printed out. So we did that, and we I try what I tried to do there is to take it just step by step, just showing people what how they might do it and what were the requirements to make a successful cluster as I see it. 
these requirements would be that you need industry involvement. You probably need some leaders from industry to be in, in inspired and interested. And you need, of course, um, the startup world. You might have to establish the start or sort of try to encourage this, the startup world to look into your into your field. But there are certain elements that I thought were sort of the, the basic requirements. And then we take all the examples that we have from, from Iceland, what have, what have been the success stories and what have been the failures as well, to learn from them. And uh, I'm hoping that this is, and I feel now already that this is helping quite a lot of people that have shown interest. And we have now interest from South America, from Asia, from the Pacific. So we're really pleased that we can hopefully be of help in this respect. Yeah. And there's even the idea, like if we take lobster as the example, whatever the waste is that comes from the lobster, the job of the person, maybe, I don't know if it's the one fishing the lobster or what the relation is, but is to find other people that can come together and work in the same space to collaborate. Is that kind of the model of how someone gets started from this? If they first write you showing interest? Absolutely. And I think what's so amazing is that you have people that have no idea what fishing is or what the ocean is. I've never been speculating in that field, but brought into a, the right community and the right network might say, I actually have a niche here. I have an idea or I have just a knowledge in certain fields that might be of help. And uh, part of this is also to bring in the investors. And I've always said, I'm not as interested in the investors for their cash as for their network. But we're sometimes forgetting it, how important the investors can be in terms of just building the network. They have a completely different network. What we need, for instance, in Iceland now are investors that have knowledge in the biotech field. So we're trying to bring in people that come from the, the U.S. clusters with a completely different set of skills and knowledge and network in that field. Because what we need in all these uh, seafood industries all around are more biotech people and more pharmaceutical industries to show interest in these amazing proteins. Mm. Is there anything else that helps to encourage people to give their time, to give their knowledge, to pay it forward beyond uh, the good coffee machine and the numbers or the business plan that you just find makes people want to be involved and do something and help? Uh, it's a good question. I think it's, there are lots of good answers as well, I guess. But one of the things that we've done in the Ocean Cluster House in Iceland is to focus on good design. Uh, so the, the, the design of this facility very much encourages people to meet and talk. Not only the coffee machines, but only the, we have glass windows all around, so no one can close their doors and to just be isolated from everybody else. So if, and we have a, a large restaurant at the front, so you will always, when you enter the house, you'll always feel that you're a little bit welcome and there are people there, so you don't have a one receptionist that's actually sort of forbidding you to come in, etc. So it's a part of the whole thing is to do that and make sure that you try to keep it sort of enjoyable as a, as a space in itself. I'm very much into architecture. I have a lot of architectural interest and I think that's partly uh, what we need to be thinking about always, especially with young people, mm. because young people are really distracted when they come into these old, awful offices that are so inhumane in many ways. We need to change that. And it's a part of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. Uh, the last thing I just want to touch upon is something that also can matter a lot to clusters, which is policy or government involvement. Uh, what has been the relation 
of government in and around all of this? And is there anything that's holding you back from a policy perspective or a government involvement perspective? No, I think the most important part which the government has done in Iceland is to have competitive funding for startups. But it's very important that this this is competitive funding. So you have, that is basically the the best example of what the Icelandic government has done with regards to the startup world in Iceland. Probably why we have so dynamic uh, startup world in Iceland is these government-funded competitive funds. We have not been supported by government. The government has really understood what we're doing. I'm sometimes glad because what I was always afraid of is that there would be this one minister that would sort of like own the cluster. And when the next minister would come in, they would say, we are doing something else. So we've never been spoiled by government in any ways. We have good good, uh, relationships with them. We don't think that we should be involved with any uh, government strategy or government law. There are other interest groups and lobbyists that are doing that. So we want to keep our strategy quite straight with the idea that we are the low-hanging fruit uh, people. We're not bothered with uh, government policy at this point. There are so many others that are busy with that. I always remember one of the first meetings that I had. There was this guy who came to me and said, Thor, I, I love this meeting, but where are the representatives from government at this meeting? So this is very much, I guess it's very much a Nordic theme, but we tend to always think that government will solve all our problems. We are actually saying clusters should not be a part of that. They should actually say, if we sit down and talk and discuss and share ideas within the business community and the innovation community, we can come up with clever ideas. But don't always excuse yourselves by saying that government is not solving all your problems. Government will never do so. It's really interesting to think of a model of a co-working space where Almost one of the KPIs is how many new businesses can you cre- create from collaborations yeah. and like what new ideas can you spawn from that? And that's part of why you want to join is that because you want to contribute and because you believe there's more work to be done, especially when you bring your capabilities together. I think that's a really cool concept. Good to hear. You have to visit us one day. Yes, definitely. So now I'd love to ask you the questions that everybody gets asked. And the first one is what is your vision for the future of food in 10 to 15 years? I think there are so many new ideas coming that I'm not really worried that the new technology will not provide the whole world to 10 billion in 10 billion in 2050 with enough food. What I think is going to be the biggest change is probably going to be the CO2 of food manufacturing. We have a huge issue there. And I think definitely a part of the solution will be the CO2 free uh, catch fish and as well farmed fish as well so we have these opportunities in all at all levels to make sure that we are we are lowering the co2 in food manufacturing but there is a there are then there will be major steps in that field in the coming years but i'm glad to say that i think that the ocean space will be a big part of the solution and when we talk about a co2 free catch what would that be defined as so ships is one thing we talked about a little bit earlier, but what else would go into that? I think using electricity on shore to make sure that we're not we're in the processing itself. It means also that the logistics have to be CO2 free. And we are emphasizing on that with uh, new technology as well. Um, so we are actually seeing the whole value chain 
from the cats to the consumer being CO2-free and having to be CO2-free in the coming years. And when you think of this vision, what are we missing to get there to make it happen? I think probably we need to have more people becoming more excited about the ocean space. As you said, 2%, whatever it is that's being used. Uh, The other thing is that (coughs) if we look at just how much is being explored, a very minor part of the the oceans has already been, been explored. So there are... We need to have more people into it. And I always remember when I had the first meeting with startups, I was at a startup meeting in Iceland in 2011, and I was telling about this idea and asked the startups, 70 companies in the, in, the, in, the, in the hall, to raise their hands, those of them that were in the ocean space, whatever it was. Not one raised their hand. So we had people wow. in game technology and all these other technologies that are more close to and people are prone to talking about them. So we, we need to get people involved and more enthusiastic about this amazing blue ocean opportunities that we have all around. So I think that's what we need to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And if I give you the microphone and ask, what kind of help or collaborations are you looking for from all of our listeners? What is it that you might want a helping hand with? Once again, my dream is to find... Uh, people that are into the biotech sector and the pharmaceutical sector that will say, did Thor really say 10 million metric tons of pure protein that we need to work with uh, that are actually wasted now at this time, used for dump sites in other countries or thrown into the ocean again? Is it really an opportunity to have these natural, sustainable, traceable proteins in our products? Let's, let's, uh, Let's call him up. Very good. And if somebody wants to call you up or email you, how should they get in touch? What's the best way? I think oceancluster.is. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, So I think uh, we have a website, oceancluster.is. So please, if any, don't hesitate to call us. And my last question for you is, is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to mention or any last words that you want to part on? No, I think you did. Super well with with the questions. I, I uh, you mentioned all the the, the most important uh, issues that I wanted to address. So I, I compliment you, Annalisa, for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm so excited about the work you're doing, and really just this demonstration of if you're passionate and you believe in the power of networks and collaboration, how much you can create and how much value, literally and figuratively, it can create. Yeah, and keep up your marvelous work. I think you're a part of the the super network that we need now in this field. So good luck. All right, that's all for today. You can find the show notes and more episodes at nordicfoodtech.io. And if you like what you hear, please be generous and take the time to rate the show or share it on social media. This is all about creating better food solutions, and we can't do that without your help. I'm Annalisa Winther, and let's spread the word about the Nordic food tech ecosystem together. See you next time.